Hello, hello, hello. It is Monday night, October 17th. Welcome to Fight Wing TV with Natasha Devine. I'm your host, Natasha Devine. So, as you will see here, I am sharing the screen with uh, my book, Because We Live Here. Um, I realize that a lot of people don't realize that although I do sell this book, if you contact me directly, um, you can get a PDF copy of the book for free. And a lot of people were saying, well, how come you're giving out something free? Aren't you a capitalist? Capitalists are all about making money, so on and so forth. First of all, capitalism is not necessarily a belief in making money. It's a belief in the freedom to make money, meaning the government should not be telling me what I can and cannot do outside of infringing upon somebody else's rights. <clears throat> so, Uh, I thought it would be a good idea to discuss the contents of this book because I don't want to be a gatekeeper. And what is gatekeeping? Gatekeeping is essentially when you have some information and you don't give it away freely. You don't make it available to the public. Uh, you don't make it accessible. You make it either behind a paywall or you have to be a member of a certain group. Um, some sort of barrier between just searching for the information and finding it, right? Um, I think gatekeeping is great for products and exclusive content, uh, like if you're trying to sell, say, a movie or a music video or uh, uh, something, you know, a, a fiction book. Uh, but I find too often people gatekeeping in the political realm, which I think is a major problem and it's part of why we have what you call uh, low information voters, right? People say, oh, people are so stupid nowadays. They don't have any information. They don't do any research. Well, the real problem is not so much that people are stupid. Yes, there is a good amount of stupid people, but the real issue is that the political elites act like an understanding of politics is something behind a university paywall. Like, you're not welcome to understand this stuff if you haven't been in the, you know, elite halls of education where some professor has professed this information to you, which I think uh, is a bunch of elitist bullshit. I think that political information uh, is just like basic health information. It's 
for the purpose of keeping you safe. So when people are gatekeeping with political information, uh, they're creating a danger to other people. Uh, and this also applies when we're talking about uh, censorship, like when you go on social media and they, for example, hide uh, a spicy political story like the Hunter Biden laptop story. People were not able to easily access that information uh, around the time of an election. And that could definitely be considered interfering with the public's access uh, to information and gatekeeping uh, with information that could potentially save lives. And it's funny that, you know, all the social media stuff with all the stuff about the virus and everything like that was all about, you know, oh, let's keep this a safe place. Let's make sure that we have, uh, you know, information about your, you know, your, your pokes and your, and your, where you can wear, you know, put your things on your face, all that kind of stuff. They want to make sure that you had that information, but you're not allowed to see information that could really, I mean, think about it. Choosing your leader of a country, think about how many lives that affects, not just economically, but literally, as we see today, we're talking about war. We're talking about literal choices in the person's control that are life and death. And not life and death for that individual, but life and death for thousands of people if you go to wars and, and drone strikes, military operations, things like that. So when we're really talking about hiding political information, it's dangerous, you know? Um, nowadays, I feel uh, like my book, Because We Live Here, uh, is saying some things that I feel are being overlooked, not talked about otherwise. Uh, and these ideas, if made more available, could potentially save lives. So that's what we're talking about today. We're, we're trying to not be political gatekeepers. So um, if you wish to show your support, and you prefer the good old-fashioned paper printed book, the link is in the description to get the book because we live here. It's because.fightwing.com for anyone who's listening to the audio and can't see uh, the link or anything like that, but it's because.fightwing.com. You can purchase the book or you can contact me directly and I will give you a free PDF download of Because We Live Here. So tonight, um, oh, by the way, of course, you can call in. It is 
Um, but what I'm going to start off with, well, I guess what I started off with was a little bit of talking there, but what I'm going to do next is, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of reading from the book. Uh, I understand a lot of people, uh, well, number one, some people are visually impaired. Uh, obviously, like myself, I uh, am somewhat visually impaired, and I'm sure there are people who uh, take issue with, you know, reading text up close and prefer to listen to it. I don't have, uh, currently, I don't have an audio book of the uh, book available, but someone recently did suggest that to me, so I'm going to look into releasing an audiobook of Because We Live Here. Um, <clears throat> in the meantime, I will be reading some excerpts of stuff that I feel is uh, currently relevant. I see a lot of people, um, especially in times of war like this, where people conflate the people of the nation uh, with the leadership and the government. And they see a flag, and to them that flag represents the government, not just the people. And in some cases, certain flags do represent a specific government. Uh, in the United States, however, we don't change our flag with each new government. Uh, we have a standard system. Uh, we're supposed to function as the Constitution states, but we keep adding extra crap onto it. But generally speaking, we have a standardized system, regardless of who goes in and out of office. And the American flag, the standard American flag, not the one with the, not the federal flag with the uh, gold around the edge, but the standard American flag is supposed to represent all of America, all of the people, including the people who work for the government, um, but it doesn't just represent the army or the you know, any branch of the military. It doesn't only represent the government. It's supposed to represent all American citizens. And with that in mind, uh, I'm going to go ahead and we're going to do a little bit of a reading from Because We Live Here. And this is from the first chapter, Metapolitics of Man and Nation. Fascists believe that the individual is the product of his state. National socialists believe that the individual is the product of his race. Communists believe that the individual is the product of his class. Honest populists should understand that state, race, and class are all products of the choices of the individuals who may or may not choose to align themselves as a unified people. 
people decide to form a state, perpetuate or not perpetuate certain races, and to enforce or not enforce the concept of a static socioeconomic class structure. Everything in the human world is the result of human choices. The consequences of all these choices have created the society in which we live. Historically, humans have been most successful when they've chosen to align themselves in macro groups known as nations. The national model is the most successful and clearly dominating model in human history. Individuals and families and small tribes have not had a great track record of survival independent of any overarching national structure. Even individualists of the staunchest variety must admit that an individual on their own who is not part of a nation has little chance of retaining their individual rights. Some level of collectivism is required for survival and political agency. It has never been one man or one woman, but always groups, often small and underfunded, of bold men and women who have stood up against the oppression of individual autonomy. Yes, there are always individual leaders who are needed to inspire and guide the group, but the existence of the group, even if tiny, is still a requisite for any level of success. Also, note that the strength of the nation or group is not always indicated by the size of the group, but rather the strength of their idea, and more importantly, their level of dedication to that idea. Many nations, as small as families, or a handful of people began tiny and dedicated to their national idea. There's something more unifying and inspiring about fighting for your cause alongside your fellow countrymen and or comrades that perpetuates the force of nature that is the human fighting spirit. Even though we're born alone and we die alone, the in-between period cannot be inspirational to anything powerful if fighting a perpetual battle completely alone. Humans are ultra-social or eusocial creatures. We thrive around and are invigorated by unity with others. This is why the globalists constantly push personal separation via virus lockdowns, remote working, internet, and virtual reality obsession. They make it look like they're pushing individualism, but they're really pushing individualized suffering in mass. The greatest way to weaken the individual is to isolate him from other individuals so that he can be subjected to direct and personalized coercive control without interruption or external influence. Rights are natural and inherent, but it's up to humans to defend those rights. Historically, the national model has been the most effective model to defend the rights of the individual. In short, the nation is the best protective shield around individuals and their rights. To romanticize the nation is to endear the hearts of the populace to the concepts of their own liberation. So let's talk about that piece of man and nation. I think a lot of people nowadays have become so 
just bombarded with with communist and seemingly collectivist messaging that they reject the idea of the collective altogether. They go, well, that's a communist idea. That's 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 not cool, you know. And in reality, I mean, you can't be a nationalist without being a collectivist to some extent because the nation is a collective. So it's not an inherently left-wing concept to recognize the importance of the collective. However, the problem with many communitarian and left-wing concepts is that they prioritize the will and the well-being of the collective over that of the individual. Uh, And that is a choice made by that collective or at least some people within it. Uh, The American model, however, obviously, um, we encourage and have historically encouraged individualism. Um, So we have a unique standing in world history Whereas we are a culture that encourages individualism as a whole, as a collective, we encourage individualism. That is very rare. Um, We obviously acknowledge the collective, the nation, but we consider individualism one of our national traits. That's not something that people associate with other countries. They don't say, well, you know, um, let me just pick a random country. Luxembourgers are very individualistic. You know, the world-renowned Luxembourger spirit. No, No offense to Luxembourg. It's just an example of a country. I could say Switzerland or Spain, whatever. Um, But Americans specifically are known for our rugged individualism. We use our collective to protect the rights of the individual. Historically, of course, there have been times where they have used the collective to destroy the rights of the individual. Socialism, communism, Nazism, any type of totalitarianism, frankly. Um, So let's go to the next element. Like what, okay, we're talking about promoting the idea of the collective. How does that protect us from the collective destroying the rights of the individual? So that's where anti-communism comes in. Next section. We have 90 seconds uh, remaining to call in if you want to, by the way. Uh, Next section, anti-communism at all costs. Communism is the destroyer of nations. The Communist Manifesto clearly states the belief that working men have no nation. 
As discussed in the previous section, we've established that the nation is what best protects the individual. Thus, communism is always a direct threat to every individual, even to the unwitting communist himself. Communism is an Ouroboros that perpetually eats itself. It feeds nations to exist, to feed off of. But what happens once the nations have all been devoured? The time to attack communist states as being false and secretly nationalist so they can destroy and devour them all over again. The plan is to keep grinding down every failed state until nothing remains. The way that the world governments reacted to the coronavirus update, uh, outbreak should have been the way that they reacted to the communism outbreak. Swift, brutal, sweeping. But alas, the states are all infected with the communist virus in this modern world, and the governments of this world were more effective in mitigating freedom than any virus. Attraction to communistic ideas are symptoms of a mental schism in which cognitive dissonance is completely ignored. The communist claims to speak for the working man, but rarely works, eschewing the experience of labor for the thrill of protest. The communist claims to want to liberate the working class, yet every attempt at enacting his system has only amplified their suffering exponentially. The communist claims to be fighting against racism, classism, and oppression, yet builds autonomous obelisks for each race, creates a political class above all who oppress the masses. Look at history. Most countries that went communist still have never escaped its grasp. Countries that were once communists are still struggling years after rejecting the suffering of communism. Nations that were once fascist seem to have run, mostly recovered because even though fascism embraced the dark world of socialism, it still didn't destroy the national idea. So there was at least something of their former nation left for the next society to build off of. Communists traditionally have destroyed all real symbols of nationalism and tradition thus leaving post-communist societies rootless and sterile. If you take a look at many of the former Eastern Bloc countries, you'll see widespread drug use, prostitution, atheism, and high suicide rates, which are all clearly related to the fact that there's no national home for all these lost children of the USSR. Regardless of your personal ideology, you as a sane human being must oppose communism in all its forms wherever you find it. Not to do so is only not only pure misanthropy, but it's also self-destruction. I know that leftist people get really, really triggered by the Pinochet meme, the idea of throwing communists or, you know, far leftists of various varieties out of helicopters. They say it's dehumanizing. I can understand how a person might feel like, well, this meme is saying that my life is worthless and I should be thrown out of a helicopter and that makes me feel like they're trying to unperson me and this makes me less than a person. Well, here's the thing. Humanity is a touchy subject, right? Like who or what is human in the modern day? We talk about transhumanism. At what point of cyborgism is a human no longer a human and so forth? Let's take this into consideration when we're talking about communism because they really dehumanize themselves with their inhuman beliefs and they dehumanize literally everyone else in their system of belief. So if you're a true communist, you don't believe, for example, that 
an individual person has rights. That's dehumanizing. You've turned them from a human, an individual person of worth, a unique and special creation in the eyes of God, and you've turned them into a number. You've turned them into a representation of either class struggle or revolution. When you think like a communist, you think like a machine. That's the dehumanization of communism. Communism promotes the idea that the whole is inevitably of more worth than the individual. That's why people think it's okay to throw them out of a helicopter because they've already literally turned all people in their ideology into essentially worthless and expendable. It doesn't matter how many people die in order to get the revolution going. You know, quote, capitalism must be ended, etc. So if you feel that way and you hate capitalism, which literally means private ownership, you're saying, I don't believe any of you should be able to have any possessions. And you're literally saying that to people. And don't you think that's dehumanizing a little bit? People can't even have possessions. They can't own property because it's somehow theft. They believe property is theft, that it's supposed to belong to everybody else and not to you. They treat you literally how animals behave like ants, like insects. So how can we dehumanize the communists when they're essentially inhuman, have a viewpoint like a machine and have no respect for human life? They've already dehumanized all of us and, and so dehumanized themselves. If the communist doesn't want people making edgy memes that make communists feel like less of a person, then maybe the communists should start acting like a damn person. How about that? Just an idea, putting that out there. Now, I've had uh, some people who are actual communists write me uh, with some points of contention about that section. Um, but each of the individuals that I spoke to were essentially anarcho-communists, not state communists. Um, they say everything that you're saying is totalitarian state communism, but we want communism uh, on a voluntary level. Okay, I'll bite, I'll debate you on that. I don't care. If you want to live on a commune, go right ahead. I'm gonna try to stop people from living on communes if they want to. If you personally get together with a group and you guys all want to live in a communistic society on your private land, I am 100% for that. Go right ahead. I There should be no level of government that can tell you that you cannot do that. I'm 100% for you to be able to do that. However, state-level communism, and what I mean, a, a communist government, For it to function requires coercion, and it would force me to live on this commune as well. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to live on a commune. So when we're talking about communistic thought, we're talking about overarching communistic thought, thinking the world should be run this way. If you have some idea that, well, me and my friends want to go in a communistic way, go right ahead. I don't care. That's not what we're talking about. The problem is. However, that oftentimes people start off small with the little commune and they try to do that. And then they realize that there's something in the regular society that's keeping 
their commune from functioning the way that they want to. And then all of a sudden they believe, well, maybe the government needs to enforce these communistic ideas so that our communes could work the way we want. And then that's where we get into the totalitarian aspect of government telling me what I should do. And that's going to end in a fight every time. So just remember that. I don't care if you want to be like, uh, like a folk Maoist, you know, like, well, we're down with the people, you know, but if the, if you're telling me that the government is going to function in this way and there's going to be a redistribution of wealth, um, no, I'm going to give a thumbs down to that. Um, and just because I disagree with uh, the communistic thought and uh, believe that people should oppose communism, uh, it doesn't mean that I'm saying that if you heard someone has a communistic thought, you should go out and fight them or, or that, you know, you should embrace anything that says that it's against communism, like uh, Nazism or, or any, you know, any, anything that purports itself to be against communism. Um, obviously, there are going to be things that claim to be what they're not. There are going to be people who say that they're fighting communism. There are going to be people who say that they're fighting globalism. And there's going to be people saying all sorts of things, and they're not telling the truth. We know this. Okay. Um, so just because I'm saying anti-communism is at all costs doesn't mean embrace stupidity. Because to me, when you're embracing something like Nazism or, or you know, racial nationalism, you tend to promote communism because, I mean, you're really, it's just controlled opposition, isn't it? Because you're just providing the narrative that the communists are saying, hey, look, these people who are opposing us are white supremacists and Nazis and all this stuff. And you just say, hey, okay. They're right, you know. So I, I don't understand how uh, how that's a good idea. And that brings us to the next section of the book, which you will now enjoy me reading. This is the section known as the multiculturalist folly of racial nationalism. White nationalism is considered by the mainstream to be a generally so-called right-wing movement. Most of its adherents espouse a hatred for communism. Most of them consider themselves patriotic. And last but not least, they've often played the role of the easy target whipping boys for hard left propaganda to the masses. That definitely solidifies the ideology's right-wing credentials, right? White rights are right, right? Wrong. White nationalism is a blue pill marketed in a red wrapper. With, as with its presumed left-wing opposite counterpart, black nationalism, white nationalism twists the real meaning of the word nation into something that can only exist within a leftist framework. A real nation is made up of people, culture, and land. If, nat if nations are to be aligned as such uh, only on the basis of skin color, 
All nations are giving up their rights to their cultures and lands and trade for what? A gray internationalist blob whose only requirements for inclusion is white skin and in most versions of non-Jewish identity? To lump all these white-skinned peoples into one group is just thinly veiled multiculturalism. The U.S. Census Bureau defines white people as follows. White refers to a person having origins in any of the original peoples of Europe, the Middle East, or North Africa. It includes people who indicated their race as white or who reported entries such as Irish, German, Italian, Lebanese, Arab, Moroccan, or Caucasian. Thus, in the United States, being pretty much anything other than East Asian, South American, or Sub-Saharan African is legally considered white. So why are white nationalists cheering for the current influx of millions of white people flooding into Europe and into the U.S. from the Middle East? Clearly, white has a very loose definition that the government, almost all white at the time that this definition was put into place, can't pin it down either. Of course, most white nationalists, hell, most people, period, aren't going to agree that brown-skinned Moroccans are white. Most Arabs even consider Moroccans to be black. Africans. However, it's clear that any definition of white people is multinational and multicultural. Yet each white nation is unique, not just linguistically, but genetically, culturally, and topographically. Can a mixed white Euro trash American really share much in common with a Polish nationalist who grew up under communism? Can a seaside Englishman truly relate to a rural Russian? Can a Swede really relate to a Greek? Do all white-skinned nations share the same experience? They usually have no shared language, no shared history, except for occasional miscegenation, usually via war, no, traditional, no shared traditional foods, clothing, or rituals outside of the most basic and common Christian holidays for a majority of them. They really share nothing other than whiteness. Their hair is different. Their eyes are different. They're simply different. In fact, each white-skinned ethnic group is so very different that white nationalists who define themselves by their own whiteness can't even seem to agree on what qualifies as white. It is simply white skin? Are you white if blacks treat you like you're white? Is whiteness defined by the viewpoint of anti-white leftists? Many groups, like Volksfront, require only one that looks white and isn't a Jew for inclusion. Yet, plenty of people with white skin and apparently European features come from a racially mixed background. My daughter looks very white, but I'm clearly not white. Actress Heather Locklear is descended from the Black Gullah Geechee community, but most view her as a blonde white actress and don't associate her at all with blackness. Furthermore, what about someone who has a white-skinned Ashkenazi father, but say a Finnish mother? Person isn't considered Jewish, and if they follow Christian culture, they might appear as a typical white person to non-whites, and be attacked as such. But most white nationalists will reject that person for having a partial Jewish background. There are even a few Ashkenazi Jews stupid enough to think that they're trans goys who identify as white because anti-white blacks think they're the same as all the other white-skinned people. Next thing you know, since biracial Barack Obama can be accepted as identifying as black because white supposedly treated him as such, even though he's 50% white, you'll see other mulattoes identifying as white because Blacks supposedly treat them as such. It's getting to the point where self-identification is becoming the norm amongst both black and white nationalists. I'm part Cuban, but I identify as white because blacks treat me like a cracker. 
similarly similar to the gender bender trend where people can just identify as whatever they want as if that magically transformed them into their fantasy selves. Nordicists who think that only countries founded by Vikings and have a higher percentage of blondes among their population count as white may accept Icelandic people who are actually a mixed race and ethnicity combining native dark-skinned dual tribes with Vikings but may have a difficult time accepting Greeks and Italians as their white brothers. Yet there are many Italian and Greek white nationalists who have so-called, quote, purer bloodlines than Icelanders. No amount of syncretic, fascistic-looking symbols on jackets or sock puppet accounts on Stormfront will ever make all whites equal. The same, of course, can be said for black nationalism, which lumps African-Americans, most of whom have at least a small percentage of white or Hispanic heritage, in with Haitians, Swahili, Somalis, Ubuntu. Naturally, the black American-born raised person has very little in common with a person from the Congo. Africans who traded their kin into the Arab slave trade have little reason to associate themselves with the descendants of those slaves in the New World. Even within the African continent, what concern does a witch doctor in the sub-Saharan wilderness have for a cab driver in Cape Town? No amount of fake dashikis or made-in-China Afro combs will truly unite people who have almost nothing in common. You just end up with more self-identification, like Rachel Dolezal case of trying to feign heritage just for political inclusion. However, Black nationalism doesn't deny its leftist origins, where, and it doesn't falsely purport itself to be right-wing, whereas white nationalism tends to do just that. Ethnic nationalism, however, doesn't carry quite as much leftist baggage. Ethnic nationalism, unlike racial nationalism, generally has the utmost concern for the culture, language, and land of a people. For example, Irish nationalism, for historical reasons, tends to be in political opposition with English nationalism. Under the banner of white nationalism, these two, these two political and cultural opponents are expected to unite because of skin color and some genetic minutia that makes the two somehow part of one nation. Never mind that our grandparents killed each other and the fact that we invade your land and outlawed your religion and language, we're all white here, right? Ethnic nationalism also has less issues in defining inclusion. Since a nation is made up of people, culture, and land, if you're of that particular culture and descended from or completed whatever traditional ritual to join and pledge your allegiance to the people from that land, you're part of that respective group. Are Russians and Ukrainians going to lay down their guns because both sides of the conflict in Donetsk happen to have white skin? What about white-skinned Muslims in Kosovo? Are they likely to see the beautiful white skin of the ethnic Serbs and forget about all the atrocities committed between the two groups? White nationalism could only possibly unite so many diametrically opposed white-skinned ethnic groups by the force of an international government completely suppressing all expression of their local traditional cultures and redistributing wealth from the rich white lands amongst the poorer ones, which is called communism. I don't think it's a coincidence that both white nationalism and black nationalism really began to gain publicity during the 1960s and 70s, the same era of the new left infiltration of Western governments uh, when it really began to gain strength. This type of multiculturalism is simply an ease into globalism. First, implant the idea that all whites are the same and should be considered one group. All blacks are the same and should be considered one group. Next, it's easier to implant the idea that all people in general are the same and should be considered one group.
I think we're going to stop with the reading for now. Uh, but anyone who's confused and may have thought that I support white nationalism, I think you understand now, don't you, after listening to what I've just read. Uh, once again, the book is called Because We Live Here. You can purchase the printed copy just like this at the link in the description, because.fightwing.com. Uh, if you do not have money, which is understandable in the Biden era, uh, you can contact me directly and uh, you can go ahead and get a PDF copy, which you can download, share with your friends. You can even print it out and read it on paper if you like, if you don't like to sit and read books on the screen. Uh, but the point is, I'll be reading more from this in the future, but I really think that people need to Think about these ideas that I'm talking about. That's why I made this fucking book. I don't want to be a gatekeeper. I didn't make this book to make money. I am so far haven't made really any money off of it. Um, the markup is only just slightly above the cost of production. So when you purchase this book, it's because you support the ideas. Okay, it's not because you're trying to make me rich unless you buy about a million of them. Okay, uh, so if you know anyone who would enjoy this book or is starting to get into these type of ideas and you feel that this would be explanatory, um, like you get some people who are new to the right, a little bit some people who are new to nationalism and they can start to get sucked in by some of the racist propaganda, uh, that type of stuff, give them this book. Um, people who are maybe trying to be activists, um, give them this book. There's, there's further parts that go into actual praxis deeper in the book. Uh, but that was a little bit um, that I think, and they just all happened to be in a row there in the book. I read them just, just in order there. That was section in, in the first section of Metapolitics section. Um, but I feel that the Metapolitics that we we're just talking about, uh, these are some topics that are currently a big deal. They matter right now. Uh, number one, the separation of man and nation, uh, uh, the, the separation of, of nation from state. Very, very important to understand the difference in times of war uh, because the state can gaslight you into disassociating yourself from or even hating people of a certain group who they're at war against. Doesn't mean you have to be at war 
with any particular group just because your government is. Just remember that. Just remember that. Anyway, folks, uh, we'll be back. Uh, should be back on Wednesday night. And I hope you enjoyed my readings from Because We Live Here. And uh, early voting has begun in District 17 and throughout Illinois. Um, I am not an early voter. I believe in voting on election day in person. If you're like me, show up on election day and write me in, write in Natasha Thompson Devine for U.S. Congress if you are in my district, which is Moline, Peoria, Rockford, Bloomington, all the things in between and the kind of weird, I don't know, like C or maybe like a G shape district. So um, if you enjoyed what you just heard me read and you're in my district, definitely write me in. And we will see you later this week. Stay free. Woo! Boiling alphabet soup. Watching all the letters melt away. The pot is getting hotter every day. Soon we're going to boil the soup away. We are boiling alphabet soup. Watching all the letters melt away. A-T-S-T-I-A-T-S-A. Soon we're going to boil the soup away. Cool Kids Gang, Fightwing.com.